I'm Millie Solomon, president of the Hastings Center, and this is the next in our series called Hastings Conversations. Today, we're going to focus on a variety of policy disputes that all have at their core disputes about evidence, about the strength of the facts that are relied upon for making sound health and science policy, and about the methodological rigor that should be insisted upon when deciding whether a biomedical innovation, a drug or a device, is safe and efficacious, whether it should be approved by the Food and Drug Administration for market entry, and whether it's worth being covered by insurance. When it comes to determining whether people should have access to new drugs and devices, and whether the government and private insurers should pay for them, you only need to pick up a newspaper or watch the evening news to see how contentious these decisions can be. And usually we're not only fighting over whether something works or not, but also over how rigorous the decision process should be and who the ultimate decision makers should be. Do we need randomized clinical trials to be sure that something works? Should terminally ill patients have the right to try unproven medical interventions even if we don't yet know that they're safe and effective and even if it might undermine our ability to do careful research on those interventions going forward? These are just some of the questions that are sending shockwaves over to the FDA, energizing patient advocacy organizations, and being debated by insurance companies and health policymakers. To help us sort them out, we have two Hastings scholars with us. Both of them are political scientists, Dr. Karen Mashke and Dr. Michael Guzmano. They've recently completed a new book called Debating Modern Medical Technologies, The Politics of Safety, Effectiveness, and Patient Access. Karen is a Hastings research scholar and editor of our journal, Ethics and Human Research. She's an expert on human subjects research and more germane for today, She's an expert on the development, regulation, and use of new biomedical technologies, including genomic tests, stem cell interventions, and brain imaging technologies. Michael is a Hastings Research Scholar, Associate Director of the Yale Hastings Program, and an Associate Professor in the School of Public Health at Rutgers University. Michael's expertise is on the politics of health reform, comparative politics, and health technology assessment. So thank you both for joining. And I'm going to launch right in. Michael, why don't you start us off and tell us why you and Karen wrote the book. Sure. Thank you, Millie. Uh, we started having conversations a few years ago about what we saw as an intriguing tension in health policy debates. On the one hand, there have been efforts over the years to improve what's sometimes called evidence-based medicine or evidence-based policy, all of which are designed to strengthen the evidence base for healthcare delivery, for the regulation of technology, um, and for better evidence for payers to figure out what works and what doesn't work. At the same time, there are ongoing efforts to what we see as weakening or reducing the evidentiary standards used by um, agencies like the FDA uh, and calls for uh, asking Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurers to use lower evidence standards before they pay for new technologies. And so the book is really our effort to look through a number of cases to better understand how these tensions are playing out. And for us, what's interesting, or one of the things that's been really interesting, uh, is to reinforce the idea that debates over evidence are not merely scientific. There are certainly important scientific questions at stake, but underlying values, 
economic perspectives, broader political perspectives, all of course shape these debates about what counts and what doesn't count as evidence. Well, that really nicely tees up the second question I was going to ask. Karen, maybe you would take a bite at this apple. It seems that sometimes these disputes do center on whether or not we've got good enough data to establish clinical effectiveness. As Michael was just beginning to suggest, you guys have taken an interest in a harder set of problems where agreement on the facts is not enough. Let's say there's agreement that something works. I know you've done a lot of looking at the new brain imaging technologies that can show that patients have beta amyloid plaques in their brain. Those plaques are associated with Alzheimer's disease. That's a fact, but that fact doesn't really help us get to a policy decision about whether public and private insurers should pay for the imaging test. Could you tell us a little bit about what Medicare decided and and why you wrote about that example in, in your book? Sure, that, that's a really great case. In fact, it's a great case because it um, shows how a public insurer has to make a decision about whether to use public dollars to pay for a new technology. And it's also a great case because the Medicare program almost always approves technologies that the FDA approved, and in this case it didn't. And it's interesting because the FDA approval is for the fact that this complex technology, which involves a PET scan and a radiopharmaceutical, shows amyloid plaque in the brain. It works, and that's the FDA's job. The Medicare program, on the other hand, pays for products for people of a certain age, older folks, and their interest in whether or not a technology works is different. Their interest is in whether or not there's a benefit to the patient. Are there good patient outcomes and um, is this something that management would change in terms of the physician way that it mm -hmm. treats the patient? And the Medicare program said, we have a lot of good evidence from all the studies that show that the test shows amyloid plaque, but we don't have any evidence to show that taking that test actually improves patient outcomes or that it would change the, the professional management of a patient. And in this case, the, the really problematic issue is that Alzheimer's disease is very hard to diagnose and having amyloid plaque in brain tissue does not necessarily mean one has Alzheimer's disease. Lots of people have Alzheimer's disease with amyloid plaque, but a lot of people have amyloid plaque and they don't have Alzheimer's disease. So the Medicare program wanted to actually see evidence of some kind of change in patient management that might actually directly affect patient outcome. And it raises interesting questions and, and tensions because patient advocacy groups and many Alzheimer's physicians argued that, well, there's value in knowing that the patient has plaque in her brain because at least now we know that this person might develop Alzheimer's disease. We might actually be able to say that the cognitive impairment that family members are noticing might be related to Alzheimer's disease, even though we can't make a definitive diagnosis. And therefore, we think that patients who are Medicare beneficiaries should get the access to the test. And the Medicare program said no. And they said the only way we'll pay for it is if clinical trials that we, the Medicare program, lay out are conducted and the patients in those trials can get access to the test and we'll pay for it that way. And then when we see the data from those trials, we'll make another decision as to whether or not the data shows sufficient evidence of patient outcomes defined in a certain way and clinical management change. And those trials are still being conducted. They're almost done, but we don't have clear 
you know, evidence from the trials yet. What takeaway do you want readers to have from this example? Well, I think one thing um, is that, and this comes up in all of our cases in one way or another, is yes, there are facts that are not actually disputed. In some cases, there are facts that are disputed. But the big question becomes, what are the relevant facts here? Mm -hmm. So Medicare was, did not dispute at all the findings uh, or the basis for the FDA decision. They just said, for our purposes, those are not the relevant facts. Those aren't the relevant questions, uh, which makes this issue much more exciting and much more complicated. Sometimes people just disagree about the facts. Sometimes they agree and they, they just disagree right. on what matters. So I can imagine that you're probably supportive of Medicare's decision not to fund this because I know that you know, you've know you written quite a lot about the importance of making collect wise collective decisions. It also seems like it could be highly politicized that there'd be you know patient advocacy groups that might be urging Medicare to spend money on everything. What what is the context here, and where did you where do you personally come out? Yeah, no, I agree with that perspective. I think uh, the troubling thing for me is that in many ways the Medicare decision on testing for amyloid beta plaque in the living brain is something of an outlier. Uh, really, as Karen suggested in her response. Since the establishment of the Medicare program, Medicare almost automatically starts paying for anything the FDA approves. And I think this case suggests correctly that the two agencies have different purposes and ought to use different standards. The fact that Medicare compromised and mm -hmm. said, yes, we actually do need information about this, so in the context of a clinical trial, we'll pay for it, but we're not going to go immediately to routine payment for this uh, as part of clinical treatment made a great deal of sense to me. That's great. It didn't get picked up as an anti-rationing uh, argument by anybody or did it? I think it was I think it was a bit under the radar. I think if this kind of thing continues there is always the danger that the people who want this paid for and want it paid for now whether it's because they have an economic interest or because they're feeling desperate and mm -hmm. want to do something for themselves or family members that it could be reframed as unwarranted mm -hmm. ration. Mm -hmm. I would just argue that I think the case um, wasn't made that clearly in this particular context because it's a diagnostic mm -hmm. technology mm -hmm. as opposed a to a treatment, right? Where there may actually be disputed evidence about whether it works or not. And there may be physicians and scientists who say it works enough and there may be other physicians and scientists who say no it doesn't work enough and then then you have the different kind of discussion about whether or not patients who have an urgency narrative they they have a life-threatening disease or they have a really horrible neurodegenerative disease should have the chance to have access when the evidence is disputed about effectiveness so this is a very different context so in some sense it was a bit easier and the Medicare program actually has a history of being reluctant to pay for some diagnostic technologies, mm -hmm. particularly brain imaging, because there's nothing that can be done when when you get that knowledge. Correct. Mm -hmm. correct. That's, that's, thank correct. you for that clarification. That's an important distinction. So now we're talking about politics a bit. Many politicians and some advocacy organizations criticize the FDA for being too slow to approve. Do you think they're too slow? I do not. My concern, if we look at the FDA approval process in comparative perspective and compare it with Europe, uh, there's good evidence that the FDA actually is moving relatively quickly. And indeed, there have been quite a number of pathways 
put in place in the last several years to accelerate drug approval process. Um, if anything, and one of our other cases speaks to this, in, in the case of the drug Avastin, um, there are concerns that sometimes under those processes, the FDA may approve drugs uh, that turn out not to be effective and may even be harmful. In that particular case, the research was done after uh, approval to provide the information so that the FDA could then to reverse its decision. But in many cases, we're approving things on a kind of fast track and not collecting that information uh, to figure out whether it was the right decision. So my, my personal bias is that we may be moving too quickly, not too slowly. It's like a Goldilocks story. Some people are saying, hurry up. And some people are saying slow down. And in a way, is it fair to say the Avastin case was maybe just right in the sense that it did go fast, but they at least did the post, the monitoring afterwards to discover the problem and they did take it off for that use? Yes, I mean, I think it's still controversial. There are still many people who are convinced that the drug was saving their lives or prolonging their lives who are very disappointed with the FDA. But I do think it's a, it's a case where the process that needs to be in place if you're going to have an accelerated approval worked reasonably well and where the FDA made a fairly brave decision in deciding to, uh, to withdraw its approval for the treatment of advanced breast cancer. One of the biggest acts that Congress took in this whole space is passage of the 21st Century Cures Act. And I believe it includes very centrally to it the speeding up of the approval process. So could you just, Karen, could you describe the 21st Century Cures Act and say a little bit about, um, in particular, the special dispensations I know it gives to stem cell interventions? The 21st Century Cures Act was originally proposed because um, members of Congress, leader, leaders in Congress, were worried about this issue about patients um, who had serious illnesses and maybe even end-of-life kinds of illnesses were not getting access to drugs. And so the intent was to try to, and it's called 21st Century Cures, to, to move the process faster to get to those cures. It became a different kind of bill at the end because a lot of things got put in it, but the essential intent was to move the process through the FDA faster. And what's interesting about this particular bill is that it specifically, I believe for the first time, actually targeted a certain kind of intervention uh, called regenerative medicine interventions, and that's where stem cell and, and um, tissue-based therapies come under that rubric. And there's a section in the act that basically provides mechanisms to, um, in some cases, require, and in other cases, to encourage the FDA to move regenerative medicine or particularly stem cell interventions through the process faster, and even to do so with different kinds of evidence, not necessarily randomized controlled trials, it's encouraged not to, and post-marketing to look at other kinds of data as opposed to post-marketing controlled trials. So it really, it really does specifically get to this issue about encouraging and in some cases requiring the FDA to use what some would argue lesser kinds of evidence for claims of safety and effectiveness and um, to move the products faster through. And then at the post-marketing stage, it's tinkered that a little bit in terms of what the FDA needs to do at that stage, which is important in light of the Avastin case because, again, if the FDA through the 21st Century Cures Act, and it covers other kinds of treatments as well, but this was specific to that act, if the FDA is going to continue to use accelerated pathways, particularly now for 
cell-based treatments that could be um, stem cell treatments that go into the brain and other parts of the body and tissue-based treatments, for example, scaffolding for organ reconstruction and other kinds of systems reconstruction, if it's pushing faster through the system, that raises the question whether the FDA has the political will and the support of Congress and the finances to actually do post-marketing and if it does do post-marketing analysis and requires that of the, of the provider that developed the product, will it actually remove from the market or require some kind of change on post-marketing? And that's the political issue that's unknown at this point. It's always harder to take something back Absolutely. than it is to not have put it into the market Especially to begin with. Especially when public and private payers are paying for it. Many studies have shown that once public and private payers pay for an intervention, that later the evidence suggests don't work, it's really hard to, quote, define. Because the public, the public and the patients have gotten used to, and physicians have gotten used to getting reimbursed. Yeah, and, okay. and also the, um, the issue of post-marketing surveillance has long been a, a big contention, uh, particularly given that drugs are often used in older people with, with multiple uh, chronic illnesses, who for good reason are often excluded from the original randomized controlled clinical trials. So even when you are using that type of evidence to make a decision about the drug, the post-marketing surveillance becomes crucial because you're actually going to be using it on a set of patients who weren't included in the collection of the original evidence. So the need for post-marketing surveillance and better information over time to revisit decisions is a long-standing issue. We're just picking up on that again so in this book. So all this push for accelerated approval does call for post-marketing surveillance, doesn't it? I mean, why wouldn't every drug that has had accelerated approval where there's less evidence, wouldn't, why wouldn't it get post-marketing surveillance? Couple reasons. Well, first of all, it's not in my best interest as the company that's producing the drug to get post-marketing surveillance because it's already being paid for and people are using it. But aren't you required to? Well, there, that's that's the rub. It it depends. Um, it depends on the nature of the approval. What was the condition of the approval? And it depends. And even if on condition of my product getting on the market faster, even if on condition I'm supposed to do X, Y, and Z post-marketing. That requires FDA resources to enforce that. And the FDA has been underfunded for years. And even with the 21st Century Cures Act, there was concern that the FDA was not even being appropriately funded just to do the other stuff that's in the 21st Century Cures Act, let alone to do post-marketing, to require post-marketing. Plus, it takes a long time to put that into effect. It can't happen overnight. So your drug goes on the market on September 1st, 2018, and you have a time lag in which you're gonna start collecting the data. It's also costly for the, the company to do post-marketing surveillance. Mm -hmm. So you've got a confluence of interesting factors and you know the question is, is the enforcer going to enforce? And, and it's important to recognize, the because Karen mentioned FDA funding, that in, in recent months and years, the FDA has been under some attack by the, the Congress, in part because of concerns that it slows the process down. Uh, and the pharmaceutical company has really come to the defense of the FDA in many instances. So That's they, counterintuitive. It is, except that I think many pharmaceutical leaders, on the one hand, they obviously and, and understandably want to minimize the costs that they face. On the other hand, they recognize the value to them in actually having a, a regulated product that the public can trust. So there's, a, there's an ongoing tension between those those two types of interests. So even the life science industry and, and pharmaceutical companies don't want to see a complete wild west where there aren't any 
um, concerns about absolutely yeah. and in fact in fact the section in the 21st century cures act about regenerative medicine actually was introduced in congress as a separate bill and leading pharmaceutical companies leading patient advocacy organizations including the michael j fox parkinson's um, research foundation opposed um, uh, the, the what was called the regrow act that later got changed and put into 21st century cures because they were worried that the requirements for fewer clinical trials and lower evidence standards could put back regenerative medicine back years if they didn't get good science. And they came out forcefully against that act. They supported 21st century cures when it was revised, that section. But they made it really clear. And they were actually, many pharmaceutical executives were very concerned about who the president might appoint to be the director of the FDA, the commissioner, because some of the names that were floated were people who had taken really clear stands on deregulating the FDA. And the pharmaceutical companies, again, they want their products to be safe and effective, and we're, we're concerned that the bar may have been being set too low. Do you think that some of the contention we have about evidence standards for FDA approval and for payment are due to the reality that the United States doesn't really have a strong national institutional structure for technology assessment like some other countries? I think there's, there's no question. I mean, if we look, for example, at New Zealand, which is a country which in recent years has really increased its efforts at cost-effectiveness analysis, but also broader public deliberation about what, what criteria ought to be used to assess new technologies, the government has presented this to the population of, of New Zealand by saying, listen, we only have a limited pot of funds, we have a budget, we operate within this budget, and we can't pay for everything. And in the U.S., as our, as our dear friend Dan Callahan has written many times, we have an open-ended system, or at least we pretend we have an open-ended system, and we pretend as if there aren't opportunity costs for just paying for everything. So without that explicit structure in place, I think it's much harder to have intelligent public conversations. You mean without this. a budget? Without a budget, yes indeed. <laughs> okay. um, we've been speaking with Dr. Karen Maschke and Dr. Michael Gusmano of the Hastings Center about their forthcoming book, Debating Modern Medical Technologies, The Politics of Safety, Effectiveness, and Patient Access. Thanks again. Great conversation.